0: Welcome back to the Mulligan Rivers podcast. This is episode 16 with Aubrey Marcus, founder of Onnit, a global influencer and motivator. This is Aubrey Marcus. I'm your host, Jordan Mulligan, and this is the most motivational podcast in the world. Today's video was sponsored by MulliganRivers.com, where you can now get the new journal ready for 2023. I'm extremely excited for you guys to see this. Um, I'm excited for the response that we've been having from the journal and all the profits as always from Mulligamers.com. go back into creating this content. So we cannot thank you guys enough. But before that, here is Aubrey Marcus. Listen to his message. Listen to what he's got to say about business and how we should operate. He has gone from ayahuasca journeys to leading these huge corporations and I think for many of us who are wanting to get into entrepreneurship and business, we struggle to find a balance between spirituality and having this peace and also being an absolute boss and killing it every single day. Aubrey's one of the small few that I found who can find that balance. So here is Aubrey Marcus. Let's jump into it. For people who don't know, just introduce yourself and what you do. I'm Aubrey Marcus, and the question of what
1: I do is a far more complicated question than I can answer in a single bio. Of course, I started a company called Onnit. I have a podcast, I wrote a book, and really I'm just trying to listen to how I can best live the greatest life I possibly can and be of the maximum service, and that's something that's always changing as the
0: world is changing. I'm so excited to hear this as well because I think the entrepreneurial like, background and all those kind of things and leading to this point today. I think that's the journey I wanna try and elaborate on. Um, so we'll start where it all started. Childhood, um, where you grew up, what it was like. And I think for us like Brits as well, like a description of what, what that place was like. I had an interesting childhood
1: because my parents split up when I was two. So I actually have almost no memory of my parents together. So my parents split and I split time right down the middle but very quickly I had two stepparents who stayed with me my whole life so I had four mentors and they were all exceptional my dad like a pioneer in commodities trading in the financial markets my mother went to the semifinals of Wimbledon in tennis my stepmom was one of the top naturopathic doctors and my stepdad was like a squat team squad leader so it was like this whole gamut of different exceptional people that i got to learn something from and i feel really grateful about it you know there's like i wouldn't have changed anything of course for my parents i know there was hardship in the divorce etc but for me it was an ideal world because instead of having two people to model i had four people to model and i just learned so much from each of them
0: that's so beautiful you can see it that way as well that's amazing um you're, you're, I, I don't know who you gravitated towards, but I'd love to hear about how you looked out to your mom um, being so successful in tennis. That sounds amazing.
1: When you asked who
0: I gravitated
1: towards, you know, certainly my mother was one of those figures. You know, I was an athlete, and I loved all forms of athletics, and she'd reached, you know, really the pinnacle. semifinals of Wimbledon, that's an amazing accomplishment. So she not only knew what it would take physically, but what it would take mentally. So... I learned a lot from my mom and then with my father, it was more like the top of the cerebral mental game of how to think about complex systems and make connections and analyze the world. So those two in particular were particularly special in providing this kind of harmony of the physical body and the mental body and really helping me become who
0: I am, which is a blend of both of their genius. Um, Amazing combination for those two different worlds coming together. Like, exactly. Uh, amazing. Um, so early days then, was there a, a side to the entrepreneurial world, the business world as well, when you was you a young, young man, uh, not so no? The
1: entrepreneurial journey wasn't really modeled by any of my parents, so to speak, until my stepdad finally got his own business going eventually, but I was a bit older when that happened. Um, of course, tennis, it's a, it's a one-person game. And sometimes you can play doubles or whatever, but it's not a team sport by any means. And for my father, he was a commodities trader. He was just him, the data, the technicals, the information, and, you know, making the best moves he could. So the idea of building out a team is something that I naturally gravitated towards. I was a basketball player and so found myself as team captain, found myself leading a team. And that leadership role was something I really loved. And entrepreneurship is as much about leadership as it is about anything. And of course, I made plenty of mistakes. But ultimately, when I combined that ability to lead, to be honest, and to make products that I actually wanted myself, like that was the secret. Whenever I tried to be clever,
0: I failed. Whenever I was like, what do I want? I succeeded. Wow. I mean, that's great advice. Um, So do you remember a specific moment for yourself that was like the start? Of the on- entrepreneurship was it? Was, do you remember, like, whether it's selling sweets at school or wherever that was? Was it was it one of those moments for yourself?
1: Yeah, a lot of people have these. Like, I was at a lemonade stand and I outsold. I would. I didn't do any of that. Really, I started with marketing and I was. Uh, I was helping other entrepreneurs sell their products and I did all kinds of different things from public markets in the energy sector to nutraceuticals and skincare to all kinds of different products and we could go down all kinds of different rabbit holes of the other things I help people sell. It taught me what the consumer actually wanted and then how to deliver something that they would be able to understand what the benefits were for that. So in a way, you know, I had a little marketing company, but that wasn't really entrepreneurial. That was really just me and a couple of people helping me help other people figure things out. And then I first started to try and make my own stuff, and there wasn't a lot of success, not even with it, which ultimately became a titanic success. Initially, the first two products I came out with, which were basically hangover supplements, it failed. You know, I, I raised a little over $100,000 from just two close friends and family and basically wasted it all and was down to... The last, last, last bit of money that I had made a pivot, created Alpha Brain, the nootropic, partnered with Joe Rogan, and that was the start. And we never took on additional capital from there in growing our business over the next 10 years. Um, Of course, that was the success. There was other failures. I also had a men's nail polish company because I was friends with a lot of fighters and I saw them painting their nails. I was like, we need to make one of these for men and that didn't do so good so there was the successes and there was the failures Um, but ultimately when it came down to on it
0: it was really about making stuff that i would really love so so with on it or any of the other companies was there a moment like in fact let's go with on it like a low moment where you was like this is it's like break point or it was like do you remember a difficult time
1: i remember countless difficult times And in fact, I made every time more difficult than the other because even when things were working, I was so stressed about what the next fail point might be. And I think that's part of the game. Like part of the game is to see every risk and play out every scenario where it's going to fail and live that scenario and try to circumvent and prevent that reality from happening. It's what the Stoics called premeditation, right? It's like going through and understanding how every single way... This beautiful thing that you're creating could be destroyed. And so I lived in that reality for a long time. But we had plenty of different crises. You know, One crisis in particular, um, we were really close to taking on an investment partner, got to the one-yard line, distributed all of our working capital because we thought we were going to get a bunch of money in. The deal failed at the last moment. And actually, our chief financial officer walked into the room and said, I'm leaving. I'm out of here you guys are gonna be bankrupt in three months and you're done, so I'm leaving. He didn't even give notice, anything. He just walked right out of the room. We call that moment cashpocalypse because it was like, that was like a real moment where we didn't know if we were gonna make it, but I always had faith because I had faith because we'd always treated our vendors right, we treated our customers right, and all of those relationships where we'd really treated everybody right, our employees, everybody around us, they stood by us in in that really hard time and we were able
0: to make it through. Something I would say myself, my brother Luca, and my other brother William are victims to is what well you have just explained, like searching for the fail point. And I think it must be a thing that all business people, all entrepreneurs go through, looking at the thing that is going to fail next. or How did you overcome that? Like what is the, the, the thing to overcome that or to manage it even? Yeah, how did I overcome looking for the fail point? I didn't. I didn't.
1: And I still have difficulty doing it. Now, what is the antidote? Like, what is the remedy to that? It's to still look, but to hold on to faith. Because guess what? I'm literally batting a thousand. I'm a hundred percent for taking on a challenge and having something happen and coming through the other side with greater knowledge, with greater strength, with greater resolve, with greater insight. Like, I've never actually failed. I've just learned. But so instead of looking at this next thing that's going to happen, like, well, if this thing happens, it's all over. It's not going to be all over. It never has been. I have no evidence to actually say that the next thing is going to take me out. I have only evidence that I'm going to make it through. So I'm learning to just have more faith, but I cannot stop my mind, nor would I want to stop my mind from seeing all the fail points. I still want to see them, but underneath that, instead of fear and anxiety, it's like, Okay, this might happen. I don't want that to happen. I'll prevent that from happening as best I can. But if it does happen, I'm gonna be fine.
0: Do you remember the point where you felt we'd reached successful on it? Like we'd got over that that curve, you know, like where it wasn't like it was more tangible to yourself. I mean, the
1: first point where the sales really picked up, you know, and the sales felt like they were effortless, like I wasn't grinding for each one. It was like we went from headwind to tailwind. I mean, that was a powerful moment. Of course, building out the infrastructure at that point, that became its own challenge. Like, who's going who's gonna to help in this department, in this department, in this department, logistics and fulfillment and supply and all of these? So we had a bunch of generalists that we hired, just people who could do many different things and eventually had to replace all those generalists with specialists, with real experts in each different category. So... I could tell that we had something successful when the sales started flowing easily. Um, But there was never really a point where I ever felt like, man, we made it. You know, it was always, it always felt to me precarious, probably until I got to the point where things were so smooth, I was able to step down as CEO of Onnit and hand it over to an incredibly capable CEO who could actually do the job that I was doing better than I could not because of his necessarily his aptitude, but his willingness to stay in there, put in those 10 to 12 hour days and actually be the CEO. And so it was a really easy choice. A lot of people said, was it hard to step down? No, it wasn't. It was like the delight of my life to be able to step down, still offer my genius, still offer my inspiration, my leadership, but to have somebody else really man the ship. That was the point where it was like,
0: wow, I think we, I think we got something that's really stable here. Do you think a younger version of yourself could have stepped away and, and passed, passed the bus on? Mm-hmm. Like, better, like to say he does a job better than me is almost, you have to let go of something to be able to say that, I guess. What a lot of people project about that is the idea
1: that your identity is wrapped up in the letters CEO, right? Because then that's an easy thing to do. Your identity becomes being the CEO of the company that you created. And when it's part of your identity, it's incredibly hard to let go. Because when you let go of a piece of your identity, your identity doesn't just morph. Some part of it has to die and then be rebuilt. It's the myth of the phoenix. Burned to the ashes and then rebuilt. So it feels like a death. But for me, my identity was never that wrapped up in it that it felt like a death. And I've gone through a lot of these deaths, and that's also partly why it makes it easy, is I've gone through many, many, many deaths and rebirths of my identity. Uh, but it was never so wrapped up in that aspect. Really, my identity is more wrapped up in: Am I contributing to the world in a significant way? And as long as I'm contributing to the world in a significant way, my identity stays intact. So I was able to shift focus from on it into you know a bunch of other different diversified categories. And so I didn't really feel it. I didn't feel the pain of it. And. Um, It's hard to say if my younger self, you know, would have found that pain too. But I think as long as I was able to offer what I felt like was my gift to the world and have that gift received, because that's important, then
0: I would have always been fine. Uh, Deaths of identity. Like, so could you, would you be able to share a specific one with, with, and with a death of identity, because I think that I've experienced that with traumatic experiences, but like, The change on the other side, how did you deal with the change on the other side? Was that difficult? Well, for anybody who knows me, plant medicine has been a big
1: part of my journey for 23 years. It started with a vision quest with psilocybin in the mountains when I was 18. And that was the first death of my identity. I came into that journey an angry atheist who didn't believe in anything having to do with spirituality. Then I felt my body literally evaporate. And something that I could only describe as a soul or consciousness remained that felt unborn and undying. And I was like, shit, i got to rethink the entire structure of what I know about myself. So that was a first major identity death. And it came at a perfect time because I was transitioning out of really competitive basketball. So basketball was a big part of my identity. So that aspect was dying. Living with my parents in my house, a lot of things were dying. And that's why these transition points are important. And I feel very blessed that I was guided through that transition point with something that could actually facilitate a complete identity death and then the rebirth on the other side. So that was the first significant one. And many of them have been marked not by an external thing, but by an internal process. I actually go hunting for these through these great plant medicine traditions. Another big one was my first ayahuasca journey. It was so significant that I ended up changing my name to my middle name, which is Aubrey, I went into the ayahuasca journey as Chris Marcus, and I came out of the ayahuasca journey as Aubrey Marcus because I was so significantly shifted from that experience. So I've really embraced this idea of allowing my identity to die so something new can be reborn. How do you deal with the, the,
0: the, the, the process of the die and the rebirth, the bit in the middle, you know, where, where the anxiety lies and the, and the change and upheaval lies? again, the idea of the part in the middle as the identity shifts,
1: it is a painful part, but I took the accelerated path more often than not in that in these plant medicine experiences. And again, these are ceremonial journeys guided in many times, like in the case of the Quechua maestro, Maestro Orlando Chuandama. He's a 3,000-year-old lineage of Quechua healers, past grandfather to grandson, leading people through these type of rituals. So in that context, you die entirely in a night or in a week. And it's brutal. I mean, my journeys were brutal and beautiful, but the process was accelerated. So instead of something extended over a long period of time, it was condensed into a shorter, far more intense period of time. And then the integration was a lot more gentle than this long, prolonged period where you're in the purgatory, the void in between identities. You're just in the ash state. You know, the the plant medicine journeys really helped me go down to ashes quickly and back up to phoenix and feathers a lot quicker. And
0: uh, just for for someone who's had the experience with it, um, what is like an ayahuasca journey like? What is ayahuasca as well? Like how how would you explain to somebody who hasn't experienced it? Ayahuasca is one of the most powerful psychedelics in the world. And it
1: combines the vine, which is actually ayahuasca, where ayahuasca gets its name, with the leaf, which is usually chacruna or opayahe or wambisa, a DMT-containing leaf. And the vine makes the DMT orally active in the body. Because if you just eat a bunch of those leaves or make a tea out of them, you won't have any psychedelic effect. But combined with the vine, you have a very potent psychedelic effect that lasts for six hours. And it gives you access to undeniably another realm of consciousness. It feels like another dimensional reality and you have visions and you see things about your own life. You get encounters with beings or spaceships or whatever might convey the information that you need to heal and transform often comes through. And every journey is different. Sometimes you don't see any visions. Sometimes it's more physical and it's just, the purge that comes out of your body, energy that you're releasing through vomit or through, you know, the other direction, or sometimes both at the same time. They call that affectionately double platinum when you're purging out of both ends at the same time, which I make fun of, but it happens to me frequently. Um, But it's, it's this interesting dance where you feel like you're in communication with the spirit of ayahuasca, which is really the spirit of the earth, of Mother Nature herself, and she's the loving grandmother that's there to heal you and show you, you know, show you a
0: way. Is there a way to touch on that similar kind of energy um, for someone who's not willing to go into the realm of ayahuasca, like through other different ways like meditation or is, is, is there another way of doing it?
1: Absolutely, ayahuasca is not for everybody just because it's my path and it's one of the ways that I was able to learn about myself, transform and grow. This is not a recommendation. I never wanna be there saying, I recommend psychedelics to anyone in particular. I'm just talking about my experiences and my experiences were very profound and very important, but it's a personal calling. It's a very personal process. And that's, it is only one way. There are many ways. I think something that I can universally recommend is breathwork and ecstatic dance. Those two things, I think, if you're actually able to go deep enough into both of those pathways, you can find massively transformative, transcendent experiences from both of those. You just have to take them to the level of depth that allows you to access you know, the healing that you really need. Um, meditation is something that I think people love throwing it around. It's like everybody talks about meditation, but very few people actually really do it. And I was like one of those people. I was like, yeah, meditation. But how much was I meditating? Not much. A little bit here or there. It's difficult. It's more challenging process. And I've learned the ways that really work for me. Um, meditation in my life is less about transformation and more about allowing my body to really rest and allowing my mind and everything to come to a greater stillness and a greater integration. But if you're talking transformation, to me, it's breathwork and ecstatic dance.
0: I just want to take it back to when you first reached that success, um, or perceived success from from other people, and you know, as an ambitious young man, basket playing basketball, um, having ambitions of you know becoming whatever you wanted to be, to finally achieving that. Uh, how did you manage materialism and buying into sort of what everybody else would have bought into? Um, is it something that you did at the time? Um, and from that, how do you manage it now? Like, how, how do you mm-hmm. not, not get attached now? Or if you do get attached now, like, I'd love to know your, your opinions on it.
1: One of the things that I'm the most interested in now, and I'm actually looking at to write my next book about, is a clarification of desire. Like, what do you really want? And I've asked that question to myself, what do I really want? If I want a new watch, well, why do I want that new watch? Do I love it because I love the chronography? I love how intricately detailed it is. And is it just beautiful? Okay, that's. I think that's a good reason to buy something. If you really love something because it's beautiful and you love it, great. Same with the car, same with anything else. Like The allurement to something beautiful that you appreciate, I think is is a virtue. But if you're doing it because you're imagining that other people looking at you are going to think that you're cool or that you're going to be able to show off your wealth and it's going to give you some kind of status, well, that's a game of the ego. That's putting yourself in hierarchy with other people for some advantage. And so what do you really want from that? Well, you want people to approve of you. You want to be loved. You want to be seen. You want something else other than the watch. So, And the watch will never get you what you want. So you're actually trying to fill a need with something external that really you need to look inside and fill internally with your own self-love and your own understanding of your own worth. So when it comes to what I want to buy and what I want to create, it's more of a question of why do I want it and which part of me wants it. And as long as I can answer that question,
0: then let's go. A lot of what we're talking about is self-awareness, like you have a lot of self-awareness to be able to look introspectively. Was that always there? Did you, or did you find a moment that defined that, that, that as I need to actually start looking within to find answers? I was constantly looking within, but I was,
1: of course, blind and biased and distorted and still am, you know? I mean, the process of clarification and introspection is not a destination, it's a constant journey. And I'm still on that journey. But the questions, the continual asking of these questions is a beautiful process that I've fallen in love with. I love when I understand myself a little better because then I understand the world a little better. I understand people a little bit better. And the best purchase I get on understanding another person is to look inside myself. So it fills two needs. One, it fills my own need to figure out what I really want and how to build the best life for me. And it fills the need for me to contribute something of value to the world but the first place i always look is within me because we are all far more similar than we are different
0: do you remember when you found that purpose of wanting to give something to the world was there a moment again for yourself um or, and also it's like how come that's how come you reach that conclusion to give something not to i know it's that, like people would say well obviously i don't want to take something but i think a lot of people do like we we come into this world we want to take stuff we want to resources um how did you reach the conclusion that you wanted to give something
1: i actually feel like i always had the desire that i wanted to contribute something significantly i remember watching all of these movies and there's a bunch of examples from buffy the vampire slayer to you know some child prodigy where some wise master from some temple somewhere comes and finds some kid and is like you're the you're the kid who has these powers and you can change the world and the kid's always like no 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 not me i was the kid that was like man when is that wise temple person going to come tell me cuz i know i got something like i got something i know it and if someone ever came to me and said that i'd be like yeah <laughs> like let's go um so i always felt that and i always felt like i was here and i was attracted to all the hero stories and i and I wanted to offer something important. It was just a part of my, it was a part of my soul. And, and, there was a deep part of me that was in love, I think because of how much my mom loved me and my grandma, I mean, I had such close relationships with the feminine in my family. I loved women. Like, and I wanted to serve the, both individual women, the embodiment of the feminine, in actual personhood and also women at large and that was also a big part and of course there's some selfishness there like I loved I loved when a girlfriend loved me I loved when I could like really make her happy but there's some deeper deeper part of me that I wanted to do this for the feminine for the goddess for and again like I said of course there's some selfish aspects to that I like I enjoy that process but also it seemed to be written into the the hero codes of my of my soul of my DNA. I think there's a reason why Braveheart starts with you falling in love with Murin, and then she gets killed, and then the hero William Wallace rises and like, fuck this, like we're going to war, and you're with him. You're with him all the way. Why? Because it was a violation of the feminine, and there's something that's deeply encoded in that. And you know, it's not that the feminine is only restricted to women. Also. It's just easier sometimes to see it that way, you know? So if you're going to start a movie like that, you know, wrong, if you do something wrong to the feminine, then the warrior, the hero just comes up and says, no, like I stand for something different. And that was like definitely a part of my, a part of my psyche as well. I mean, I would have fantasies about saving some and all the stories, saving some, you know, saving some woman from some distress, and of course, those, those stories have problems. Many, most of the time, women don't need saving. In fact, they're the ones saving us, right? So I understand that the meta, there's meta issues with that story, but there's also something really beautiful about it. And it's definitely something that I had inside myself as well.
0: Braveheart was
1: a uh, family favorite film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I can be friends with anybody who doesn't like Braveheart. If you're like, I didn't like Braveheart, I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, it's yeah. nice knowing you. Yeah, definitely.
0: That's good. If you're enjoying this podcast with Aubrey Marcus, please consider heading to mulliganbrothers.com, where you can now get the Not a Journal ready for 2023 where all the profits go back into creating this content. Um, so we're talking awareness, awareness of body as well. I know you, you well, as a basketball, uh, as an athlete um, and in a family of athletes, you must have had focus on that at the start. But um, at what point did you start to have an awareness of the body and like awareness of being healthy and being fit and strong? I was lucky. I was lucky about body
1: awareness because my mom was a professional athlete, so she understood training. She understood what it took to be the best. And my stepmom, as a nutraceutical doctor, she was actually one of the nutritional doctors for all of Pat Riley's teams, basketball teams. So the Lakers in the 80s, the Knicks in the 90s, the Heat in the 2000s. So I had that growing up. Like, that's a big advantage. And that's not lost on me. Like, what an advantage I had, how blessed I was. And I think this also drives this feeling like, I've got to give back because the world has been so fucking generous to me. I've been so blessed, like, so blessed. And I don't like the word privileged because there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of stuff that's attached to it. But yes, I was blessed, I was blessed and blessed and blessed. And so that natural feeling and the gratitude towards that has then compelled me to say, well, I wanna give back. Like, I really wanna give back. And one of those blessings was my parents having this knowledge. When I was playing basketball games as a freshman in high school, I would get a stack of supplements on a, on a kitchen paper towel that would help me perform better. Like what ninth grader gets Pat Riley? team-level Los Angeles Magic Showtime Lakers-level supplementation to go play their freshman basketball game. Like, what an advantage. And, what, and then, then I talk to my mom about what's going on in my practice, my training, and she can give me, like, specific advice, not for basketball, but how to be the best athlete. What an advantage.
0: How important is it to be physically strong, physically fit, healthy?
1: My friend Daniele Bellelli has a quote. And he says, when the mind is in doubt, the body provides tangible proof, right? So when you start to doubt yourself, because the mind will always doubt yourself, if the physical body is really capable, you can look at this as a source of confidence, as a source of like, you know what? Like, I got this. You know, if there's a big kettlebell over there, I can swing it. If there's a bunch of weights on this bar, I can squat it. If there's, you know, something that needs to be done, like I can handle it. And so it builds this sense of confidence from the ground up that I think is really important. And I see myself get shaky. Like when I get sick or when I get injured, then my own mentality gets a little wobbly because like I don't have that foundation of trust. And so, you know, that's something that I've had to learn in those moments. Like, all right, it's okay. Like you don't, you don't need this. Don't use it as a crutch, but it's so useful to be able to rely on the strength and aptitude of your physicality. Plus, life is so much more fun. When you can go surfing or free diving or play any sport or learn a new sport. I learned how to play pickleball like two years ago and it's been it's like now my favorite sport. And I picked it up real quick. And because my body is like ready and equipped and hand eye coordination and strength and agility, all of these things now allows
0: me to do some of the funnest things in life. I love that the foundation to have like it's such a confidence like, that it provides. is amazing. Um, so then I wanted to move into, and we spoke about the ayahuasca journey. Was that the beginning of your spiritual awareness or your spiritual journey, or was that just an addition to it?
1: The beginning of my spiritual journey was, again, when I started as that angry atheist, materialist, reductionist, and then felt my body evaporate and had that moment of, oh, shit, there's something else here. And I've studied religion and philosophy and tried to learn the best from all of these different schools of thought and lineages. But really, my own journey has been experiential. If I can't feel it, then it's not real to me. Like, I could listen to somebody talk about God for as long as they want, but until I've felt what God feels like in my whole body, I don't believe in God. So if somebody asks me, do you believe in God? No, I don't believe in God. I know God. I know it. You don't have, and I don't want you to believe me either. Like, go find out for yourself. You know, like, you don't take my word for anything, but you can go find it and you can find a place where you know, you know, and nobody can take that from you because it's not built on words and it's not built on an idea. It's built on gnosis, which is the Greek word for the consumption and the entire enmeshment with that knowledge it's like the difference between someone telling you about an avocado and saying yeah it's green and mushy and then you having guacamole and you're like oh I get it I fucking get it I know and I know an avocado now
0: I love that analogy uh, do, you know when you was the young the younger man on the on the come up before the awakening would you identify with a you the typical like on, entrepreneur the the young men that we see today who are just i don't want to use the word selfishly selfish but like going forward um without that spiritual balance and it's it's more a case of like trying to just not get these these uh points and knock knock them off the list would you have identified with that i, I, I don't know if you would if you did but if you did um or even if you don't what advice do you give to those those young men in time tap into that spirituality when you're thinking about like
1: what you really want what your goals are. Again, it goes back to the question of, well, why do you want that? Why do you really want that? Why do you wanna be an entrepreneur? Why do you want to achieve all of these goals? And really like be patient with that question and understand that all of the things are, are fine. Like we don't have to have shame about all of these things we're told to have shame. Do you want pleasure from this? Okay, great. Of course you want pleasure. Of course, don't lie. Like, of course you want pleasure. And did I want pleasure? Fuck yeah, I did. I wanted pleasure. I wanted access to pleasure. Pleasurable things, pleasurable experiences. Did I want power? Yeah, I did. I did. And for two reasons. One, my ego. My ego wanted power because I wanted to think I was better than other people. Of course. Of course it did. That's what the ego does. It only knows itself in comparison. But also, did I want the power for, instead of the power over, the power for helping other people? Did William Wallace want power? Yes, of course he did. Of course, for Scotland. You know, that's that's why he wanted, like these things that that have been shamed, they don't need to be shamed because they're true. And when we shame them, we put them in the shadows. So really looking at what you want and why and being honest is really, really important. I wish I would have been able to do that a little bit more clearly then, and in the recent studies that I've been in, I've been studying deep in the Hebraic wisdom traditions, all the way from the Temple of Solomon, Solomon, Rabbi Mordecai Liner, all the way down to modern teachers. They call this the process of berur, B-E-R-U-R, berur. And it's the clarification of desire. It's understanding what do you really want and why do you want it and who is the you that wants it? You know, and that's like, that, I think, is the key question that we aren't asking and we aren't answering honestly. And I think that's also a big deal. We got to ask the question honestly and we got to answer it honestly because we'll like to tell ourselves, oh, I just want to help people. I want to help my family. Yeah. And you want pleasure. You want power. You want purpose. You want, you know, we, there's a lot of other things you want. Like, be honest. It's OK. <laughs> it's like we're all the same. You know, it's, we all feel that. And if you deny that, you're probably full of shit.
0: I mean, the word ambition at the moment is like, I would say, looked on negatively even. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of people do look on it negatively. And I think, again, young, younger people, easily influenced, get the opinion from parents, friends, family, onlookers even, of that your ambition is almost like poisonous, like the, what you're wanting to achieve is almost like a bad thing. How, how would they, or how did you even deal with those kind of opinions from others? Of course we have ambition. We, I mean, if we
1: pretend that we don't have ambition, I think actually we're just, pre- we're preventing ourselves from that potential failure. I think it's actually more about cowardice at that point. Like we're afraid to confront our own fears of giving it everything we got. And that's what's causing us to say, oh no, ambition itself is bad. It's actually coming from a place of fear. But where there's the shadow of ambition, where ambition turns dark, is when the ambition supersedes your ethics, right? Like if your ambition is greater than your ethics, then you're willing to do anything to get what you want, right? And if you're willing to do anything to get what you want, then I think you haven't looked carefully at what you really want, which is to be loved, to love yourself, because you will never get that if you sacrifice your ethics to get what you think you want you won't get that. So for me the ambition was always girded. It was always it was always there was always bumpers on the ambition by an understanding of there's only one way that I could ever actually meet my ambition and it had to be honestly. So the way that I built on it, I wanted to make sure that every single encounter and transaction from a transaction with an employee, they're giving me time, I'm giving them money, but what else can I give to make sure that, that that transaction is favorable, that the bank of reciprocity is even, and I will always err on the side of generosity. You know, if they're buying a product, well, they're giving us money, we're giving them a thing, I want to make sure that thing is worth the money they're giving, and if they ever feel like it's not, we had we actually revolutionized the industry for return policies, Instead of having to fill out some form and send back a receipt that you totally lost and like mail something in, they could just call us up and be like, hey, I didn't like it. Be like, cool. What's your account number? We'll give you money back. Like we wanted to make sure that every different microtransaction we did was in integrity. And if every microtransaction is in integrity, then there's no bounds on where you end up going And so it allows your ambition to be unbridled but you have to have it bound by a sense of ethics and the ethics are bound by a real clear introspection about your desires and what you really
0: want. I can really hear like when you're in the passion coming through of creating on it like and, and the work that went into it With that perspective now, like what advice would you give to somebody starting their own company, their own brand, their own product? Like what what would you give them?
1: Love it. If you want to start a company, you better love, love, love what you're creating, you know, in a really significant way. Like that's the most important thing. Like if you are not, if you are not the number one fan of your product, you fucked up because you got to make it, you made it. And if you don't make something that you love, then you made a mistake. You're trying to be clever. Don't try to be clever. Make the thing that you want the very most and that you're gonna love the very most and your passion for that is going to be felt and it's going to be shared by your audience. And that's like the most important thing I can tell somebody.
0: Again, with the the idea of the product, Some people, I guess, would buy into the idea of making more money, or 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 the idea that making more money leads to them being eventually to be able to create the thing that they actually want. How how do you get to the point where you're just deciding to do the thing you actually want to do, as opposed to chasing uh, false narratives, or you know, create you know, I, I mean, it's very easy to create a false narrative of this. I'm doing this because of X, Y, and Z i mean
1: i actually admire the intelligence of somebody who's clever enough to create a product that they don't love and sell it i've never been able to do that you know like i i mean it's not my way but i'm not going to judge it if you can do that and you're clever enough to create something that you want nothing to do with you know if you're a vegan and you create some new barbecue grill or something like that like good for you (laughs) you know like i i think that's awesome But it's really hard and at least it's hard for me. And again, maybe it's because I'm just not clever enough, you know, but for me, the thing that makes me intelligent is that I know myself and if I know myself and I'm honest with myself and I love something, then I know that thing is
0: lovable because at least I love it. I love that. Okay, so I want, I want to take a, a quick a quick turn on this one. Uh, something that we do quite a lot, and I know you've mentioned it before. We do cold therapy all the time, like love cold immersion. Like I know you've said you've got a cold a cold mm-hmm. um, plunge pool. What is that doing to? Well, what what is it doing for you? Jumping in cold water, like some people might think that's just madness. What's the point?
1: There is a lot of research on the physical benefits of cold therapy, yeah. and. You can read my book, Own the Day, Own Your Life, chapter two. It lists all of the benefits of cold therapy. There's a variety of different things for inflammatory processes, for immune system, for cold shock proteins, for different hormone regulation. There's lots of cool things. But that's not really why I do a cold plunge. Yes, I'm happy that all that happens. But there's two reasons why I do a cold plunge. One, I don't want to. I don't want to. And one of the most important skills in life is to be able to do the thing you don't want to do and do it anyways. When you look at that cold water, then, and you don't want to get, I don't know, some people like Wim Hof probably, I know Wim, and it feels like he wants to get in, but that's not most of us. Most of us don't want to get in. You know, and, and as Wim says, the cold is merciless and righteous. Like even he understands that there's an element to it. But if you can practice that skill of doing that thing that you know is good for you, but you don't want to, then that applies universally to life. That means that you can sit down and do that work that you don't want to do. You can put yourself in this seat and handle this thing. You can wash those dishes you don't want to wash. I don't care. You can have that hard conversation with your partner or your friend. or your You can do all of the things that you don't want to do. Go into that termination meeting yourself with an open heart. Whatever that is, it's the same skill. So it's practicing that skill, number one, and number two is I really like, and again, I recommend people are careful with this. There's a phenomenon called cold water blackout, but I, rec- I really like going and submerging my head. And that's a big part of cold therapy for me is when I actually get, and it's really the back of your eyelids. When you get those underneath cold water, something triggers called the mammalian dive reflex. And you'll actually hear your pulse go Slower and slower and slower and slower. And you'll feel your body go through a shift that's really profound. So things are busy and chaotic and I'm moving from one thing to the next and my heart rate is elevated because I'm handling a billion things. And then I can get in the cold and for a moment, the whole world slows down. And if the heartbeat is connected to the world, which feels like it is, when your heartbeat slows down like that, then the whole world slows down, just for a moment, and that resets everything for me. Again, caveat, if you're going to do this, it's good to have a buddy there to watch you, because there is a phenomenon called cold water blackout, where you can actually go unconscious in the cold. Be careful of that, but otherwise, the mammalian, the mammalian dive reflex is the second reason why personally
0: I do it. I love that. Again, I think for me is the, I get the clarity, the physical benefits. It's something I don't want to do every mm-hmm. single time I manage to get to the edge of it and go, oh, go home tonight. You know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. But one thing I, I struggle with is putting my head under. I love putting my head under, but it, for about a second and I get bra- instant brain freeze. Are you fighting through that feeling or does, it not, does it not happen or? It happens sometime. The, so the brain freeze effect of putting your head under
1: it can happen sometimes and it particularly happens if i submerge twice but usually the first time i submerge it won't happen and i don't know if this is something that's physiological and it's very interesting to me that if i submerge for let's say 30 40 seconds and then i pop up and then i'm like i'm gonna go for another one i can only go about 10 seconds because my head starts to feel like it's like like i said brain freeze um That's my experience with it. And if you do experience that, I would try actually just putting your face under, you know, so you could stand over the cold plunge and just put your face under. Um, And because really what you're trying to do is get your eyes, the back of your eyes,
0: that cold and, uh, and you'll still get a lot of the benefit that way. I I think I'll give that I think you you might be right in that because I usually do it when I'm getting out So I've been in there for like five ten minutes Mm -hmm. and then I'm sticking my head under as well So I've already kind of experienced the cold for a long time Um, I'm glad you could speak about cold therapy because it is it's something we're quite passionate about Um, And it's cool to see I can't wait to see what your pool looks like Mm -hmm. yeah amazing Um, So taking cold showers cold therapy into account what would be the ultimate daily routine, whatever it is, your routine inc- it, that includes like nutrition, exercise, um, cold therapy, whatever it is? How would you, what would that day look like for you? I mean, your question about the ultimate daily routine is a hundred and
1: ten thousand word book <laughs> that I wrote called "On the Day, On Your Life." Right? Literally, I took every chapter of the day from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, including playing having fun having sex working a normal day not like an exceptional day where you have all day to just be devoted to doing all of these things because that's not realistic it was like a normal Tuesday you know this is what you can do and we put all the practices in there that you know you can bring into your day I think there's some core elements like everybody loves this morning routine idea and I think it's important how you start the day is very important there's three things for the start of the day one you need to rehydrate. So you lose a couple pounds, depending on how big you are, might be less than that if you're smaller, of moisture overnight because you're breathing out moist air and breathing in less moist air. So also depending on how arid the climate is, there's a differential. So you're losing, losing water, so rehydration. And we're not a freshwater organism, we're a saltwater organism. So a few grams of sea salt, I like Himalayan sea salt, a dash of lemon, and then like 12 to 16 ounces of water right when you wake up. That's going to start the process of rehydration. And the mild effects of dehydration, it doesn't take much, and it doesn't take much. And I think that's a lot of why people are so tired in the morning, is actually not for any other reason than they're mildly dehydrated. Um, I've started using mouth tape, interestingly, when I sleep, which actually helps this. I feel less dehydrated in the morning because I'm breathing out of my nose when I'm sleeping. So, That's just a side note that I wasn't aware of when I wrote the book on the day. The next thing is you want to start your circadian rhythm. And that's the natural hormone cycle that regulates the day. So getting some light on your body. And if you're in a really dark place, it's important to have, you know, bright lights that you can actually use to actually get your body habituated to the light. And movement, some kind of movement. You don't have to do a full workout, but something to get your body moving. Those things will start to trigger your body into a wakeful state, and you won't need to reach for that coffee until later in the day when that's when I like to drink my coffees in the afternoon.
0: In, in terms of diet and supplementation, sp- specifically for an entrepreneur, like what would you recommend?
1: So, the question of what is the supplement that you should take for optimal cognitive performance was the very first good question that i asked when i started on it and that's what created our flagship supplement alpha brain so there was like nine different things that i was taking for cognition and i'm kind of a little bit lazy when it comes to that stuff i have nine bottles in there i'm like "Eh, fuck it you know i'll drink some coffee whatever i'll deal with it so i wasn't actually even taking the things that i knew worked because it wasn't convenient enough so i was like all right I've learned both from my stepmom, both from the research from all of these different athletes and different people that I've been interfacing with, what the best supplements are, but nobody's put them together in a single formula, and that's what we did with AlphaBrain. So we came out with AlphaBrain and it really revolutionized the idea of a cognitive enhancing supplement that you can feel that's real. And we did clinical trials, you know, plus double blind placebo controlled clinical trials to prove efficacy even after the first dose. And so those, you know, that supplement out of all of them is probably the most important supplement that I could recommend to anybody who wants peak cognitive performance. Uh, on it just came out with a new version called Alpha Brain Black Label, which is like the, the Cadillac version, the top shelf version. It took us 10 years to find a formula that was actually better than the first one that we came out with. Um, but we finally did it. And uh, and so I take that one pretty frequently. Also, like a lot of convenient ways to do it, there's ready to drink. There's a powdered version that's easy to travel with. So that's the supplement that I can I can really fully back and recommend.
0: I'm walking around day to day basis doing my normal stuff. And then how would I feel afterwards? Like what would it what would it do to my sort of cognitive function after taking the supplement? So one of the one of the things that we actually
1: tested for in the clinical research was brainwave state and we actually saw a difference in peak alpha so alpha is the brainwave state associated with flow state that's when you're in the zone and you don't have to just be in the zone on the basketball court or in sports like you get in the zone when you're writing something when you're working and all of a sudden you're just in it you're in it and you're doing the things that you need to do you're not thinking about the other things you're not in resistance to what you're doing you're just in the moment doing your work and that's what you feel like when you take when you take alpha brain it's not a stimulant so you're not going to be all jacked up because that actually diverts your attention a lot of different places great for cleaning the house you know if you want to clean the house like whatever some kind of methamphetamine derivative like adderall or whatever great you know like you can and i say that because it's only one molecule shifted from methamphetamine a lot of these pharmaceutical like add drugs are very similar to street drugs in like what they're actually doing yeah sure like clean the house but you're also you're also it's like it's difficult for me to really actually focus on a task and uh and i'm not saying that these drugs aren't effective in for certain cases or whatever but um when i really want to stay and like focus on something that's alpha brain is what i reach for and because it's not a stimulant like that and if i do want to stimulate because i'm sleepy i'll just drink some coffee with it and uh, but you really kind of lock in and also it helps you you know remember there were some different tests california verbal learning test where you actually see how many names you can remember out of a set of 10 names or 20 names and people were remembering more names people were able there's executive function tests which is basically like following through a maze a different cognitive maze and people were able to execute that more clearly so there's a lot of benefits that we've shown and just a lot of anecdotes from, I don't know, probably approaching a million users at this point uh, of people who just feel like, as Joe Rogan said, like your brain's firing at a different RPM level.
0: Yeah. Do you think like the, so you partnered with Joe Rogan early, early on, um, do you think that it's only just getting into the forefront now like has it been spoken about for a long time or is it just starting to come into it where people are starting to really consider taking these kind of supplements
1: i think when we first started on it in 2011 came out with alpha brain it was early like it was really early and we kind of positioned our surfboards there early with a great product and now it's part of the mainstream discussion um we were definitely early then and uh but it's one of those things that once you actually understand it then it just becomes one of the tools that you have available and all of us we have our own tools whether that's caffeine or whether that's nicotine or whether that's kratom or whether that's supplements or whether that's naps or whether that's cold plunging or whatever we have this host of tools breath work whatever of these host of tools that we have and our tools actually make us more effective as people and this becomes just one of the tools that's available, and and that's really what Onnit was trying to do is just create tools that allowed us access to a greater total human optimization.
0: What are you looking to do now? Like, so you've stepped stepped away from Onnit as CEO, but you offer it, you still you still give it the input. But like, what are your goals now? Like ambitions, right at the moment? I sold Onnit. Onnit is sold.
1: I am no longer. I'm also not CEO and I'm also not the owner but it's still my flesh and blood it's still a part of me like you will never be able to get the on it out of me or the me out of on it and we're inextricable Um, so next what's next I'm really in a process of of deep listening to you know what does the world want now because again the world has given me so much like my gratitude towards the world is It's an impossible amount to make up for because the world has been so gracious to me every step of the way. Yeah, I've had my hardships. Yeah, the car accidents and the heartbreaks and the sure, sure, you know, the deaths of people who I was close to the my father, you know, going suffering from his mental condition and and leaving my ability to interact with him when I was 30. Yeah. All right. Sure. But overwhelmingly, it's gratitude. So really a big part of my question about what's next is what does what does the world want from me? How can I be of greatest service? Because I got a, you know, it almost feels like I got a debt to repay. I've been given so much. One of the answers to that is a coaching group and a community we created called Fit for Service where we bring people through different programs that help them access their own self-sovereignty, this own level of introspection that, help them ask the right questions about themselves. We're not trying to give anybody answers. We're just helping them ask the right questions and find people and peers who can support them in their own journey. And that's been an incredibly rewarding process. So if anybody's curious about that, it's just called Fit for Service. Um, and writing and podcasting and doing all the things that I love. And, and again, just a deep, deep listening like, okay, like, world, I'm here. Like, again, I'm, I'm here, Mama Earth. Like, I'm here. Like, what do you need from me? Like, I got you. Like, thank you for everything. I got you. I'll fight for you. I'll fight for you to the fucking end.
0: If you was to direct somebody to a piece of work that you have done, like one of your books or something, what was the first piece, like, piece you'd recommend? I just released a documentary called Awake
1: in the Darkness, and it's about a six-day journey i did an absolute pitch black darkness absolute silence other than this strange little box that did a repeating ohm i was like on a 10 second loop which was interesting it was kind of maddening but also interesting um but basically absolute silence absolute darkness absolute isolation and i did that for six days and i brought a blacked out tape recorder in there with me So the documentary actually brings you through the journey that I had in the black and it was incredibly raw and incredibly like powerful for me. And I think again, the things that I went through, you know, issues with my father and my family and my own relationship towards life and and love and self-love and all of these and what I took for granted and all of these. It's a powerful piece. It's a powerful film that has a lot of, you know, important lessons to it. And I think maybe people might not be aware that, uh, that that documentary exists. So I would check that out. You can go go to my website, aubreymarcus.com,
0: and you'll see Awake in the Darkness. Thank you so much. I mean, we'll link it all in the description. I look forward to consuming it myself and have, having a watch. Um, where can people find more from you? Uh, where's the best place to, to consume your content?
1: at Aubrey Marcus is on Instagram. I'm really active there. Um, on YouTube, it's, uh, slash Aubrey Marcus pod, you know, pretty much everything gets up on YouTube, Aubrey Marcus podcast, some amazing conversations that I've had there. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of places to find me. Of course, I mentioned the book Own the day, own your life. If you're interested in the physical dimension of things that's available on Amazon. Um, I had a good time reading the audiobook version, so if you're an audiobook type of person, I recommend that. Uh, it's hard ass work to read an audiobook. Actually, it was like four days of just two producers in my ear telling me, I think we heard a stomach gurgle in there. I'm like, a stomach gurgle? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, really? We got to do this again? Um, but it was, it was great.
0: And I'm really, really proud of that. And, uh, you know, someday there'll be another book too. Uh, thank you for doing the audio book because that's how I, I'll consume it for myself. And uh, thank you for giving us your time today. It is so appreciated. Um, blessed that people like yourself will share this time with us and hopefully we can share this message with other people. So thank you. Of course. Thanks for coming over to my house. Thank you so much to Aubrey Marcus. For me, as an entrepreneur and a businessman, one of the hard things that i found is to find a peacefulness and a spirit, like the spirituality And balance that with the go-getter side, the entrepreneur, the businessman who has to make those tough decisions and has to work relentlessly. To find a balance between those two is very difficult. And it's quite easy to be pulled in one direction, but Aubrey Marcus and his lessons that he speaks about has really helped guide me. And I continue to work on that and continue to take inspiration from Aubrey Marcus I'm going to link his stuff down below so you can find out more about what he gets up to on a day-to-day basis. If you want to see what I get up to on a day-to-day basis, it's at Jordan jordanmulganbrother on Instagram. Um, Have a blessed and productive day, guys. And remember, at mulganbrother.com, you can now get the Not A Journal where all the profits go back into creating this content. Have a blessed and productive day, and I'll see you in the next one. Peace.